This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mexican, but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. And that's what happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Venezuela is lucky to have Colombia as a neighbor, as it continues to welcome hundreds of thousands of refugees and migrants with open arms. 1.5 million Venezuelans have fled to Colombia in the last few years, and about 400,000 Colombian citizens have returned to their country from Venezuela, which means about 2 million people in total are now in Colombia just in the last few months and years. But not only Colombia's capacity and patience to keep receiving Venezuelan refugees is reaching its limit, but also the number of Venezuelan refugees will reach 6.5 million people in 2020 if the status quo continue, according to the UN, and about 8 million, according to the OAS. But Colombia is not only facing the challenge to mitigate the problems of its neighbor, but internally the country is going through a very delicate and important time as the implementation efforts of the peace agreement are taking place with various results. The region is also in turmoil, with a shining example of Chile facing massive social unrest, populism is present in countries like Argentina, and Bolivia is fighting to have free and fair elections to elect a new president. My name is Moises Rendon. I'm the Fellow of the Americas Program and Director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS. And to help us understand better all of these important dynamics, here with me is Ambassador Kevin Whitaker. Since 2014, Kevin was the U.S. Ambassador to Colombia until a few months ago this year in 2019. Ambassador, thank you so much. You have a great experience. We really follow your work closely on the ground in Colombia. And we're honored to have you here for the first time in 35 West. Well, thanks very much, Moises. It's a, it's a real honor for me to be here. I listen to the program, and so it's a particular honor for me to be on it. You know, I'm completing five and a half years as ambassador to, to Colombia, and I think a, a pretty historic time. Having said that, all of Colombia is historic. It has a way of, of generating a lot of history. It was a great honor to serve there as well. Prior to that, I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for South America, and so had a had a seat as we saw the resurgence and then the retreat of what at the time was called the the pink tide. And now it it appears we're we're entering into a a completely different phase now of political developments in the region. Completely. We now see a lot of developments in Bolivia, right? The Bolivian people finally are trying to have what in international standard we call free and fair elections, which they haven't had the possibility yet. And now they're trying to get conditions on the ground to meet that election. But in Argentina, we we see, and not only in Argentina, in the region, we see populism as the main issue, right? And and in part, the people in Latin America, their patience are limited with their political parties, the institutions, their trust in governments and in democracy is declining. We see all the data going down this in the last few years. Chile, the shining example of the region, is now in decline. So how do you see all these developments in the region and how are they connected? It's a good series of questions. I think you're thinking about it the right way. It seems to me there's a couple, three things that, that really stick out for me. One is no matter how successful a government, and, and I think you can fairly say that governments like 
Bolivia under Morales and, and Ecuador under Correa actually did deliver some benefit to the people. And I think that's admitted even by their, their political opponents. What happened in the case of Bolivia seems to be this desgaste, this tiring of the people with a particular system. I, I always cite the example of uh, Thatcherism and Reaganism. Obviously, our situations here and in the UK are different from in, in Latin America. But after about 10 or 12 years of the same set of people governing, people get tired of your act and, and they're looking for a change. And I think that's certainly a factor that went on with Morales. I don't want to let Morales off the hook, though, because clearly the step that he took in running for the last election, not this current one, but the previous one, he had made the commitment to take the proposition of re-election to the people. And when he got a result that he didn't like, he put his hand on the scale. So that's one factor. Another factor, which is, you know, quite concerning is the role of the military and government. It's, It's significant that Morales determined to depart after the declaration by the chief of the armed forces or or whoever it was. I remember when I first started working on the region, which is now 35 years ago, there was this map that we had with military dictatorships sort of from top to bottom. But it seemed we had gone beyond the phase in which the military was, in the phrase that's used in Spanish, deliberative of, of playing a role in the political uh, life of the country. And one wonders whether that's whether that's happening now. And, th- and then the final point is the dissatisfaction more generally of people with their government, whatever it may be, and the increasing pace or, or turnover of people's focus on the achievements of their government. The feedback loop is, is now almost instantaneous. And so dissatisfaction can occur yeah. very quickly. No, that's a great point. Talking about the military and the role of military in countries, right? Going back to Venezuela, main difference between Bolivia reaching the stage of facing possibly free and fair elections versus Venezuela with potentially an stagnation of the domestic circumstances where Maduro is just falling into power no matter what. The Venezuelan military hasn't been as outspoken. In part, what I'm hearing, and I agree with the reasoning, is that the Cuban role in Venezuela has played such a major role that has neutralized many, if not most, of the Venezuelan military officials. But to the point of the role of military and the role of non-state actors like FARC, ELN, Colectivos, and other criminal gangs and groups that are operating in Venezuela and in a way are part of the structure of the government of Maduro. How do you see the linkages between military, government officials, and non-state actors? Is there a link there between criminal groups in the Venezuelan government, Maduro's government, and how is that affecting the possible transition for democracy in the country? You know, a couple of thoughts. First off, I think it's a critical matter analytically to sort of think about why the Venezuelan military is where it is. And you, you noted the role of Cuba, and I agree with you. I put it in a different term, and that is the role of counterintelligence. And the Cubans are very good at sussing out plots as they may be developing, and so there's great fear within the Venezuelan military. The second item in this regard is just payoffs. These senior military officers have been getting lots of goodies, including you know military equipment, but also just simple payoffs. I recall a time when when I was there, which was you know now 10, 15 years ago, where there were 
Lamborghinis and Ferraris in front of the officers club at, at Fuerte Duyuna. So we all know what that means. And, and the final thing is it's just been 20 years. And so I mean, you could call it a purge, but really there's been this whole turnover of the senior leadership of the armed forces. All of these people really from lieutenants on up, all they really know is, is this Bolivarian re- regime. The inability of the Venezuelan military to control its own space is yes. shameful. This is shameful. The, the one thing that the, a military is supposed to do is control security within its space and, and have a monopoly on the use of violence. And that role has been usurped serially by the colectivos, but also now by the ELN and what people are calling the FARC militias or FARC mafia, I should say, right. or FARC dissidents. And it's, it's just shameful the way that the Venezuelan military has ceded that space to these illicit actors. And the illicit actors are exploding many of the minerals in Venezuela. And that's been one of the main sources for financially and, and illegal activities from the Maduro regime, right? Like Venezuela, including Colombia, has one of the most important, vast reserve of minerals. And the ELM particularly is present, right, in this area called the Orinoco Belt in Venezuela, which is the size of Portugal. It's a mm-hmm. very important territory area. From your perspective, and I know you're watching this closely from Bogota, and it affects Colombian security in many ways, how are you seeing the development of these groups exploding minerals, illegal mining, and at some extent narco-trafficking and other illicit activities in all this vast area between Colombia and Venezuela? How worrisome is that? And how the Maduro regime is taking advantage or not? Well, the, the Maduro regime is just absent from that space. So they're, they're a non-factor in that regard. Yeah. It's sort of important to view the history of it. I, I think that those spaces close to the Colombia-Venezuelan border down south by what is Arauca in in Colombia and and pushing eastward from there, has long been sort of a strategic reserve area for the ELN and the FARC. Or it's where they got pushed by the Colombian military because as they they were getting pushed around militarily by the Colombian military as Plan Colombia took hold, they would flee into Venezuela because the Venezuelans had no ability to control those spaces. They had a strategic rear guard area that they could retreat to. There's no question but that those spaces were also used for, for narco-trafficking activities, especially air shipments. And this has you know, ebbed and flowed over, over the course of time, and it's flowing at this point. We're seeing more and more flights coming out of that part of Venezuela and going up to Central America with cocaine. In Venezuela, as in Colombia, coca cocaine is a high-value illicit product, but so too are, are gold and coltan. And in some ways, those are better products to manipulate for a very simple reason, and that is that coca cocaine is illegal at virtually every step of the process, and gold and coltan and these other rare minerals are never illegal. So it's, it's always lawful to have these in your head, even though the extraction method may be both unlawful and destructive to the environment. Definitely. Going to Colombia, the situation in Colombia is delicate. We have a domestic environment where the Duque's administration is trying to balance many of the dynamics that we're seeing in, in the country in terms of social unrest and corruption, the Venezuela challenge, but also their own peace implementation efforts. 
what's your assessment of where Colombia is today and where Colombia should go next and how the U.S. and more broadly the international community should be supporting and continue to support this important key ally that we have in the region? I'll start off where you ended, and that is that Colombia is our best and strongest and most capable ally in the hemisphere, for my money. I think that it is the most willing and the most capable. It's judged for that reason and because of our long experience with Colombia to a higher standard. I get that and I appreciate that. But I think it's very important both for Americans and Colombians not to miss the main narrative thread of the story, which is Colombia 20 years ago was a near-failed state. And now it is a unitary state actor with strong institutions that is making a significant effort to address the two key problems which we identified as being problematic for its further development, and that those being violent extrajudicial actors and the narcotics trade. That's not to excuse, and I agree with your description as you started out, this is a very challenging moment for Colombia. But I think it's important not to lose the narrative thread here mm -hmm. and in that way maintain the, the bipartisan consensus, which is just absolutely critical to the relationship between Colombia and the United States. Let me just make comments on, on three quick areas. One is peace process implementation, the economy, and then security generally. Peace process implementation, everybody knew that this would be the hardest thing to do. It has proven to be so. You know, one of the things that has happened is the Duque administration has sort of remarkably, to my view, been held to a higher standard than the Santos administration. I think they both faced challenges and they both went at it in a, in a serious and dedicated way. The Santos administration had 20 months to implement. This administration has had 10 or 12 months to implement. Mm -hmm. Yet the Duque administration is, is generally seen to be judged more, more harshly in that regard, which I think is unfair. But it's also – it fails to take into account the reality of the circumstance. The economy is actually doing quite well. Uh, yeah. It's growing at 3 percent or so. Investment continues to flow in. But there's a concern here, and that is that as generally speaking, we see greater instability in the region, whether it's the protests in Chile or the election results in Argentina or what's happened in Bolivia, you can have a perception that's more broadly shared in among the investor community about South America undisaggregated, that is viewed as a whole, which is, again, not fair to Colombia, but that's, that's the way that things are done at a certain point. And then finally, on, on the security front, there has been a retreat in, in security, and I think everybody notes that. Most Colombians, if we had a Colombian here, I would be willing to lay money that their principal concern is not about armed actors in the countryside, but rather common crime, which is problematic in, in any large city. But regardless of what environment you're talking in, there's a, there's a sense of retreat on that front. And as a matter of governance, that's important for the government to, to focus on. Absolutely. Ambassador, I remember visiting your embassy about a year ago in Bogota. And one thing stick to my mind that you said about the peace implementation efforts in Colombia. And it was you, in a way, put as a very important priority building roads to mm -hmm. connect communities that were under the control of guerrilla groups. And that, to me, made a lot of sense because communities need to be communicated, need to do commerce with each other. But a year later, what's the priority that you think that the peace implementation should be focusing on in terms of integrating all these territories, all these areas into the rule of law and governance? And, and how the U.S., right, and other countries should be supporting those efforts are critical for Colombians to keep growing and keep mm -hmm. developing. 
Yeah, this is this is a really complex challenge that Colombia has faced for for decades. A fundamental problem here is that much of the problems that we've been talking about here, whether it's coca cocaine production or the related matter of the existence of illegal armed groups, including the FARC in its day and, and the ELN, this relates to a very small part of the country. The number that we used, everybody's got their conflict geography map, but there are 1,100 municipalities in the country. We focused on about 140, so 10% or so, 11% of the whole. And so it stands to reason if those 11% of the municipalities are causing these disproportionate problems, then the government obviously needs to focus on them. The problem is that only about 25 or 3% of the population lives in those areas. And so if you're the minister of education or the minister of health, you're saying, well, uh, sure, I'd, I would love to invest in those areas, but I have to deal with these big cities where there are you know, lots and lots of people who need to be attended to. Those are perfectly valid arguments as well. There's a decision that was made in the Santos administration, and we, we had long discussions about this when, when I was there at that time, about trying to implement the peace process everywhere at the same time. And that's too hard to do. I mean, just, just the long and the short, it's too hard to do. The peanut butter doesn't spread over the bread in that way. What the focus was that you know we were arguing for at the time, not, not that we're so smart about everything, was to show some islands of health and use that as a demonstration so that other people, other areas would be attracted by it. The Duque administration is doing precisely that. They have identified five key areas that they're really going to focus on, and, and I hope that they will be able to engage in the kind of investment that we're talking about, whether it's health or education or the one that we spoke about before, infrastructure. Absolutely. So for good or for bad, I, I think Venezuela has become the top priority, right, for U.S. foreign policy. And it makes sense because Venezuela is imploding and it's affecting the whole region. But how do you see the Venezuela security humanitarian crisis impacting Colombia's security and Colombia's efforts to make sure that they succeed, right, in this very important time. Where, where is the connection that you see there? How mm -hmm. impactful is the Venezuelan crisis in Colombia? Especially thinking that the status quo in Venezuela is the most likely a scenario. This is only going to get worse. The numbers of refugees are only going to go up. And the, the security consequences of, of this crisis will only rise. Moises, that last point is, is absolutely critical because as much as we want to all want to see change there, that fundamental change needs to take place, this requires strategic patience. This is not going to take place between today and tomorrow. We just don't have the, the tools to make that happen. As, as dedicated and committed as, as this administration has been, this U.S. administration, I think they have been. We have been quite focused on, on this in that regard. It is going to be a source of continuing problems, especially at the financial level and especially at the local government level. A couple of points here. I, I agree with your statistics. We're probably in, in the region of 2 million returnees between Colombians and Venezuelans who have gone to Colombia at this point. That's 3 or 4% of the population of Venezuela. Most of the Venezuelans who are arriving now are poor and low skill. And so there's a disproportionate burden that's associated with that. Uh, they have children, so there's educational needs, there's housing needs. Most of that is falling on the shoulders of the Colombians, especially at the departmental and municipal level. Every major city in Colombia has, you know, high five figures, low six figure numbers of, of Venezuelans. In Bogota, it's, it's approaching 200,000 uh, Venezuelans. 
So it's a grave problem in a context where the Colombians have problems of their own, right? right? That they're yeah. that they're trying to face. This is layered on top of that. One last comment in this regard is I think it's just critical that the international community step up on this. Yeah. The United States has been there. Yeah. I think we could do more. I think we should do more. But this compares in no way to kind of the kind of support provided by the international community in Syria, for example. Comparisons are odious, right? But your average Syrian beneficiary got 10 times the support of the average Venezuelan. And I would argue as somebody who cares about the region, and I hope uh, an American patriot as well, I think this is much more critical to U.S. interests because of the, the knock-on effects and the criticality of Colombia and the region to the United States. Such an important note to end this episode, Ambassador. This is critical for the U.S., it's critical for the region, and the international community more broadly should be stepping in. Colombia needs to help and Venezuelans and others in the region. Thank you so much for being with us in this episode, Ambassador. We hope to have you back very soon. It was my pleasure. Thank you. And I hope that all of you enjoy our conversation today. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the Americas Program page at CSIS.org.